Hey y'all, and welcome back to another episode of the Crude Audacity Podcast, the podcast that talks shop shit and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. As always, I'm your host, Catherine Mills. I'm a reservoir engineer with a focus on advanced characterization. Now, for the conversations thus far, when we have been questioning evaluations and optimization techniques, we really have been speaking in terms of the first 200 days of the life of the well. And it seems as an industry as a whole that after we hit peak, everyone starts forgetting about those next 50 years we forecasted on. So today we are going to hit the field. We are actually going to put some real meat behind those fancy buzzwords and talk all things operations. If we want to be the best in the world, let's hit production. And here to set us straight, Christian Viette, welcome to the Crude Audacity podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. And I have to tell you, your resume is probably one of the most impressive ones I've seen. And don't get me wrong, I love being a reservoir engineer. I love data, I love identifying trends. I love that reservoir is where uncertainty ends. But if I was given the option to assume your resume and take the same path that you did, I have to say, I probably only need someone to give me a chance because you really have done and seen it all. From drilling to revitalization, you and your team are the team that's making my fancy predictions a reality. So let's get right into it. How did you become you? Why oil and gas? What path did you take to get yourself into this industry? And I can't wait to talk about where you are now. <clears throat> well, I guess it's all circumstantial. Um, it's, uh, it's funny when we were at, you know, back in college, you know, I had no idea I was going to work in the oil and gas industry whatsoever. That's a common theme. I know. I mean, I grew up with a mining background, you know, with my family in, um, so I've been around exposed to, you know, hard rock and drilling, you know, f I guess they're for coring and geologists and stuff like that. But, um, you know, I was more of a mechanical focus, if you will. Okay. And then, um, you know, out of, out of circumstance of the economy at the time, uh, it kind of sort of was pretty option limited. And, you know, lo and behold, the service company came around and said, Hey, how did you like to work in the field and wear jeans every day and have a company vehicle and, and have this view outside your office, you know, and, and every day is a different job. It, it sounded really appealing and um, versus, you know, designing nuts and bolts, you know, <laughs> or tractor parts or things like that. And um, so, and they had a training program, uh, which would put us back into train us in petroleum anyways. So basically, you know, you had all the background with fluids and thermos and strengths and materials and machine design, all the things that are mechanical, mm -hmm. strength of materials, fracture mechanics. So there was a lot of background on with, you know, wh where we went to school. It was sort of abroad where we already had geology and we already had a lot of, you know, background for what we were going to do. And so it was kind of a good segue. It fit. And, um, you know, I, um, I guess I, it's just kind of the right place at the right time, really. Yeah. Um, that's just kind of sort of how I stumbled into the oil and gas industry and uh, uh, not knowing anyone or anything about it, <laughs> you know. Um, what is this petroleum engineering thing? <laughs> it was an easier degree to get than the one I got, I thought. But, uh, Actually, I don't disagree. <laughs> you, so, um, but uh, yeah, it was all, uh, you know, for the best. So that's kind of sort of, I tell people I'm in the oil and gas because of pizza. You know, we were hungry, informational meeting. And, and that we just followed our noses, and, and it was just kind of like happenstance, really. Really? <laughs> How long were you in the field then? Um, I was in the field for five years. So, okay. Which kind of sort of makes me a unicorn because a lot of people 
a lot of people just spend a couple of years and then kind of sort of leave the field. But mm-hmm. I mean, I enjoyed doing what I did. Um, we traveled all over the Rockies, got to see all these different camps, different areas, different fields. And, all uh, frack? Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, you know, we got involved in other services, but you know, for the most part, that's, that was the focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though you learn frack, cementing and, you know, all the tools, quilt tubing, everything that the services company can provide. Yeah. But, but my focus was always completions. Completions. Yeah. Well, that kind of led into the operations background then. Yeah. And so, you know, when I had the opportunity to jump to the operator side, um, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, obviously they needed help on completions. And yeah. then I think working in a small company, you know, it's where you're kind of poised to be multifaceted rather than, you know, just a one dimensional, you know, I always call it crescent wrench, you know, versus <laughs> you're either a five eights and that's all you do and that's all you turn, like a production engineer in a big company. Yeah. Or, you know, in a small company where you roll up your sleeves and you'll tackle anything that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And so I got involved in, in production, you know, workovers, production optimization, from PNAs to completing wells and, and involved in, you know, eventually was involved in, in drilling and dealing with surface landowners and, yeah. and just getting involved in everything. That's awesome. So you yeah. got to really see it all. Yeah. See, that's why I like your resume so much because you actually really have seen it all. So when you went from field to firm, what was that transition like for you? You know, at first, um, it, it was at first it was sort of get your hands around you know how they operate you know when you work in a service company you don't really get to see you know what you see you know on the operator side from the planning part you know to the execution of the drilling you know mm-hmm. to to the completion part to putting on production facilities all of that um, and so um, you know just being very involved basically I guess I have to say I involve myself with geologists, I involve myself with the production folks, I involve myself with the field people. Mm-hmm. I involve myself everywhere, just being thirsty for knowledge, if you will. That's so smart. So, but really, I mean, I know that seems like such a blase thing to say, but a lot of people don't seek out the extra knowledge or the extra conversation. Right. And I think, I think having a really close relationship with, with geologists at the beginning really helped understand the whole reservoir, you know, mm-hmm. if you can understand the reservoir a lot more than you know, than just seeing like stresses and, and how you're going to do certain things, it just kind of helps you, you know, get to the, get, get to the end, if you mm-hmm. will, of, of doing a better job, you know, by having a better understanding. Mm-hmm. I love my rock jocks. I wouldn't be anywhere without them. <laughs> Have you ever heard that one? Rock jocks? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Um, okay. So you work your way into a small, uh, small independent how does that climb start for you? Do you really just stick to completions and then get to branch out? Or yeah. did you actually go through each discipline? No, I mean, large companies offer these training programs where you rotate. And I, I can speak to other operators where I never worked, but I knew they would have like engineers for a one year time, just yeah. rotate and rotate and rotate. And they all get cut? Um, it's, <laughs> well, it's, the, the, the training program gets yeah, cut. <laughs> eventually, yeah, that, some of these went away, unfortunately. Um, so for me, it was more of, more organic, I, I guess. Again, circumstantial. I was doing completions uh, for them, you know, in 2006 and seven, and then, you know, had some asset sales, had some more time on my hands, got mm-hmm. involved in more things. And then we had a downturn, and all of a sudden, then there was a different focus on, you know, with less staff on hand, take this responsibility because nobody's here to do it, type of deal. Yeah. So again, it's always like circumstantial, but I was willing to do anything. And yeah. 
And so that's always been my mindset. If it all pays the same, you know, why shoot away from anything, you know? Exactly. And um, I think, and so I got involved, you know, in the last, in, I guess it was the 2008, 2009, where I really kind of <laughs> got involved in. Just in time our, for the fun part. <laughs> I know, I know. And from production, P&A is doing, get involved more of just a, what operation engineers do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it just kind of sort of grew where you just kind of, you know, add a notch to your belt along the way. Yeah. You know, um, it was never a try to get it all at the same time. You know, that just doesn't work, I don't think. And no, too I, much I mean, at once. But some people, I mean, I'm different. I obviously, I'm, I'm different than most people. I, I don't want to ever put myself in a position of incompetence. And mm-hmm. I was more of the person that I'd rather do something really well before I go on to the next thing. I like that. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense, you know. That way you're not a jack of all trades. And you that, actually have some mastery. Yeah. That happens a lot where you meet the jack of all trades, master of none. I don't want to be that. No, so. not at all. You want to be a Swiss Army knife. Right. So it's interesting you said, you know, operations, you can get lost in it if you don't take that sort of path. So explain to us what your role and responsibility is now, everything that you oversee versus what the typical quote-unquote operations engineer is because I've noticed that that title kind of gets thrown around a lot but depending on what shop you're in it actually has a different meaning yeah I surprising can't, though <laughs> I can't I can't speak for the larger companies um, where I know everything is fairly siloed but you know in a smaller company an operations engineer means that you know they could be working on completions they could be working on production they could mm-hmm. be working on on even on drilling I mean it's not like they can't um, so it's not really limiting in a small company um, we've we hired people here and that's what I want them to be because I want them to be multifaceted and not just one-dimensional mm-hmm. um, so whether it's involved in drilling and saltwater disposal and building involved in the facility design involved in everything um, it shouldn't limit them but um, I think going back to your original question um, on how you know what my roles and responsibilities here are, you know, it kind of started where, you know, in this company, we, they hadn't operated horizontal assets, you know, prior to hiring a few key people here and including myself. And there was no process, there was nothing. So we kind of started from the ground up, Mm -hmm. if you will. And so um, from all our file organization and how we're going to do stuff, you know, we just basically had to start it from scratch. All hands on deck. Yeah. That's awesome. Involved in, you know, from, from deploying, hey, we need to, you know, we need to serve, we need to meet with these landowners. We need to serve, we need to go survey their land. We need to, you know, get the surveyors out to their stake and permit, and we need to get involved with regulatory. Mm-hmm. So we, that was basically sort of how, you know, from from nothing to something, and then yeah. kind of moving forward and, and drilling this well, and then completing this well, and meanwhile building the facilities for this well, mm-hmm. and you know, and, and putting on production, and eventually putting everything on lack so you can have everything piped and everything. And so, you know, for, for, for me now, as we've transitioned from one well to, you know, many, many wells, yeah. um, you know, really our, I guess, everything changes along the way. But I would say that, you know, I was involved, you know, and hired here, you know, I was dealing with vertical production wells, all this legacy asset stuff. Um, the completion, the drilling, yeah. the, you know, and I was, it's just kind of like you have to quarterback that stuff, if you will, and, and put the key players that you need help with, you know, and, and making sure you're doing everything correctly. But, uh, um, I mean, we just kind of sort of bolted on and morphed along the way and grew as a team. 
That's awesome. How many did you guys start with then? So we, I mean, this office has been, I mean, this is a pretty old company, but this mm-hmm. office was part of the non-operated, um, they were overseeing the non-operated side of the company okay. in, in the Bakken. Okay. And so they, they were in the Bakken prior to all the big companies mm-hmm. and they sold their position down to them. But, uh, so there was, it was mostly non-op from the shop until they hired, you know, another engineer and I was the second engineer to be hired here mm-hmm. and he was the reservoir guy and I was the <laughs> ops guy yeah and um and so we just kind of sort of tag team so you know it's, it came to a point where you know he has ops background also and mm-hmm. so it's like I needed him to help me because I can't you can't handle just everything you exactly know? I'm not gonna work you know 120 hours a week you know when he's not <laughs> I'm just saying we gotta we gotta work together so yeah, yeah so we've had this team collaboration from the inception that's awesome and I think you know, that's just sort of, you know, and right now, you know, we're, we're monitoring, you know, we're overseeing the drilling, the completion, uh-huh. the, you know, the production, everything, you know, it's, it's kind of nice, but we kind of sort of divvy up where it's not just always completely burdensome on one person. That's excellent. Well, to your point, y'all went from a few wells to very many wells, and yeah. y'all really are from north to south across the 48. I mean, it's, it's awesome. So what... What are some of your, I, I guess, as you have evolved, what have you noticed is the most important data to you? When you're looking at any basin, any location, what are the things, your key players, that you need to know about? First and foremost, it, it always starts with geology. Um, yes. You know, uh, I remember before the Permian was the Permian, for example, as far as the shale plate piece. Yeah, yeah. You know, people had a really difficult time analyzing what was pay because geologists were asked to go evaluate pay, you know, from using Archie's equation to, <laughs> in, to, to what is pay in, in a shale. And it, it was just like, it was like pulling hairs. And a lot of these smaller companies didn't have some of the fancy tools that bigger companies have and the massive, you know, geological teams. And mm-hmm. so, but really and truly, uh, it always starts there and how good are the rocks, you know, and mm-hmm. what's the potential. Yeah. And so, well, the potential evolves with technology also. It, yes, and I've been known to make a few silk purses out of sow's ears, but you can't do that. You can't do <laughs> I that. I like all, that. You can't do that all the time. And so, um, you know, and I've always tried to to make, to completely optimize and perpetually optimize and not just sit and, you know, do the same thing over and over and expect that you can have a different result, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, so when we were looking at any basin, obviously um, – Right now, there's not a lot of explore. There's not a lot of money for exploration. So there's not a lot of money. Period. I know. And so right now, it's just kind of develop what's known to be out there. Mm-hmm. But so, the shale legacy assets. Right. <laughs> right. But you know, for a small company, the allure of stepping into a basin, it's it's if there's no place to go, there's no place to go. But it's tough because you want takeaway capacity and you want to be infrastructure. Like it's small to be a little. It's difficult to be a little guy, in the in you know in this big world and all of a sudden you have this great place and you have no place to take your oil or your gas or mm-hmm. anything like that. And so I've been part of when we were re- working Utah where, you know, there was everybody is all everybody's wells were on, were choked out and there was no way to get it out of there. They built this four foot pipeline and you know, it just didn't even take a uh, six months and it was completely filled and, really? and, and, and again, differentials, you know, and it was just one of those things where, um, you know, obviously it all boils down to economics of what your production, your wells, your, your cost and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But, um, um, yeah, it, it's, 
there's like so many key factors that you want to look before say hey do i want to be in this basin so like is there takeaway is mm-hmm. you know, how are the rocks yeah you know is there water is there <laughs> is how are you going to execute okay you know it's difficult the difficulty to execute some people don't think about you know you know how hard it is to execute in just harsh weather mm-hmm. you know oh yeah so so, a lot of places have to shut down because of you know snowpack alone or hurricanes i mean there's oh a, yeah it i forgot ma- about them <laughs> I mean, so... I am from Mississippi. I should know about that. Yeah. I mean, so you can never always plan for that stuff. But, um, yeah, I mean, some some basins are more friendlier to operate. Mm -hmm. And and obviously, um, and some require a lot more bureaucracy, you Mm -hmm. know, with with dealing with regulatory. Mm -hmm. So they, to me, has has less appeal to just keep adding layers of regulatory. But if that's all you have, you you deal with it. Mm -hmm. So it just delays how you can deploy and plan if you will if it takes you two years to get a permit for example yeah exactly that's that is everyone's happy subject right now yeah. <laughs> um do you think it's getting harder for engineers to move from field to firm starting on a frat crew they're considered not to have the technical skills that you need in a small operator up to a siloed major so is it getting more difficult um well i think so okay um, and it depends on what your degree was in the first place. A lot of these, a lot of these big companies had training programs a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would cross train and stuff like that. Um, and a lot of those have kind of fallen to the wayside because of how much poaching the operators were doing. You know, you know, a decade ago or so, for example. Yeah. And it sort of, it sort of put a bad taste in the mouth of the service companies. They spent all this money training their people, and their people were leaving. You know, um, and so... Well, that was the hope that you would get poached. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but it's at the same time, you know, I guess, and I can only, this is a funny story, but it's about recruiters. Okay. I mean, the if recruiters were the ones that were saying, we don't want any service company experience after, I think after the 2009 crash, there was a lot of that from recruiters. Really? Because um, there's a difference between a frack engineer and a completions engineer. And I think a completions engineer should know what a frack engineer does. Actually, so <laughs> here's a funny story. Um, for me, when I started in this patch, there was people who were deemed completion engineers, and they were mostly res- they were mostly petroleum engineers. Mm-hmm. And they had never worked a day in the life in the field other than, you know, maybe going to a frack job and sitting a frack job. But they didn't have the rock mechanics, fracture mechanics. They didn't mm-hmm. have frack design. They didn't have any of that. And they never spoke to a geomechanist. <laughs> right. And so um, the best completion engineers in, in the oil and gas industry today, from my standpoint, mm-hmm. are the ones who were frack engineers sitting in a frack van for a service company. Mm-hmm. Because they understand the mechanics of the equipment. They understand frack design. They've been through all that stuff. So yeah. for frack modeling, seeing real-time forward modeling as you're fracking, mm-hmm. you know, you can adjust to, to any situation, whether it's frack width issues while you're pumping the job. Yeah. Understanding fracture geometry, understanding all that stuff, understanding leak off, all those, all those integral parts that you know to make you successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but a long time ago, completion engineers were conventional rock frack was something foreign. Mm-hmm. Com- People used to say they were in completion fluids, and I, I was like, what does that mean? They were it, in completion fluids? Yeah, yeah. It was what pack, is that? It's packer fluid. Oh. It's just corrosion inhibitor and biocide. So, oh, well, so, I'm so, in that too. <laughs> so I'm just saying, so things evolve, right? So if that was completion fluids and completing a well in the olden days was just perforating it 
or doing a breakdown because it had permeability. Guess, yeah. It had permeability, it had pressure, and it mm-hmm. would it would flow. And so you didn't need to do hydraulic fracturing. Yeah. And so hydraulic fracturing obviously has picked up a lot of steam, and it has existed forever. Don't get me wrong, but um, it, it's evolved and it's changed. Yes. And you know, I I see a lot of who my peers are. You know, not nothing to do with titles, but just of people of the caliber of people. Who are in charge of completions in, in many companies? Yeah, um, a lot of them. The ones that I would say they're most successful ones all came from service companies. Okay, but, that's good to know. But the latest generation has been a little <laughs> bit different, and it's been different because we've been dumbed down. We don't have our training programs. There's part of that, and part of that is, you know, for all the poaching of all the engineers that were poached from service companies, and this is again going back to that. The, mm-hmm. the, that the, era. The, the era of what recruiters were saying is there was such a mixed bag of what they got that they'd rather not go back that route, hmm. which I find is unfortunate because, you know, that was the opportunity I was given. Yeah. And, you know, I've tried to prove myself. I mean, work ethic is work ethic and, you know, your ambition is your ambition. So I, I don't know. I can't speak for everyone, but it is sort of a little more difficult these days to go transition from frac company, or for example, or you know, service operator to to working for you know, production company. Mm-hmm. And it's it's you have to be given the opportunity. So it's either sometimes it's nepotism, somebody you know, somebody you know. But I, I find so many people struggle to make that jump today. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say it's I'm seeing it across disciplines also. I've been a reservoir engineer for almost four years, and I've been very fortunate, on a, albeit unconventional in my route, but I've been very fortunate to have advanced characterization, to be able to do advanced analysis, modeling, everything, and trying to jump from that looking for what else do I need to branch out to. You're not seeing it as easy to become a completions engineer, even though you may have a bit of that background, or even a production engineer. So are you noticing that from your side as well? Yeah, you have to. I mean, the larger companies are used to be the one where the training grounds, and I, mm-hmm. you know, people people for now just want people to be so specialized in their craft mm-hmm. that, you know, I uh, I remember talking to a few companies and they kept talking to me. It's like you keep want to be a generalist. And I was like, no, I just don't want to be limited to the one discipline. Exactly. And I want to grow in my career. Like, how do I become an operations manager if I just know? one thing and so and I'm not saying you can't learn it all on the fly however um, I just so I think the smaller companies offer where you can you can basically get involved in more things Mm -hmm. without basically you know because everything in larger companies is very different in larger departments if you will Mm -hmm. compartmentalizes the word I was using exactly and so it's kind of hard to jump into somebody else's compartment without them knowing, right? Slash they might not want you there. <laughs> yeah. So, so in a small company, it, it provides you more of an opportunity, you know, to be on the fly on the wall and to listen yeah. and to involve yourself. And, you know, who's going to criticize you for wanting to learn more and be involved in more things as long as you get all your job done, right? Exactly. As long as you're showing up and have something to present. Right. If you have time to ask a question, ask a question. Right. So I, you know, I don't really have all the answers for you, but <laughs> as, but smaller companies today seem to have to have more opportunities to cross train. But the downfall of that is 
smaller companies want people to be good at what they're doing when they hire them, it's kind of hard to train a brand new college grad in a small company with no training program. Exactly. So again, so I think the transition from what I've seen, people work in larger companies for four or five years and then, you know, at some point they get tired of bureaucracy and want to get to a smaller company. Exactly. And can hopefully get into that mode. Yeah. Well, um, one of the things that is floating around are KPIs. We're really fighting them in terms of we're realizing that the KPIs that industry uses in terms of money management, reservoir, who's outdoing who in which basin, they're really not the right fit for this industry. It's, it's kind of created, some would call it a Ponzi scheme, some would say that we're banking false reserves, what have you. And we need to utilize this current pivot point as the chance to reevaluate what we put value on. So when you see a new engineer or you're going into a new basin becoming a production side post-peak, because people tend to forget post-peak that we still have a field to run here, what are some best practices that you're noticing? Where are we getting it wrong? Where where can we improve as an industry, as individual companies, and as engineers assuming the newer roles? Right. Well, I guess this, this question is a, a multifaceted one. <laughs> the first part of, of what I want to address, I guess, is, you know, I've been griping for probably a decade about the whole investor piece of of people wanting to see flashy IPs. Oh, I and, hate and, IPs. <laughs> but, but, you know, and so what I refer to an IP now is 30 or 90 days, you know, for myself. Um, but it, it, to, the, to this day, you know, in our, we're in the Permian exam, for example, is a, there's a publication called the Permian Scout, and all mm-hmm. they do is they, they give IPs, uh, mm-hmm. and they're just 24 peak rate, you know, so what uh, happens in the Permian after IP90? Well, Do y'all even care? There's unicorns. <laughs> so it's it's so it's like you see a lot. I, the way I explain it to people, you see a lot of faces. Yeah. But you never see the tail. Exactly. So, and so, you know, so I don't like to get I don't get excited about people people's hype, if you will. Mm-hmm. I I just show the data, right? And so, you know, everybody has their type curves. Um, and so we try to honor our type our type curves, if you will. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, so we're that can be a big feat sometimes. <laughs> it can be, and sometimes you you can't control everything. You yeah. know, from one wall to another, you know, the rocks are different. Just in a one oh, mile section, twenty feet over. Right, and so, and so not everything's the same everywhere you go. And so, but we are applying always the same generic curve to everything, assumably. Yeah. You know, in our in our in our industry, if you will. But uh, yeah, I. I for us, I mean, for, for our company, most of our wells are on, are on um, ESPs. Okay, know? yeah, that makes sense. And so our typical runtime on our ESPs, you know, our production manager probably be, he's pretty proud of that. And, you know, it's, <laughs> it's above average, and it's like in the 234 days or something like that. Excellent. And then, you know, at, at which point you may downsize your ESP. Mm-hmm. Um, but for us, you know, and eventually go down to pump jack. Some companies go to gas lift right off the bat. So it depends on who's the operator who's the production company like who who's in charge of it? and it's all based on people's experiences i feel because mm-hmm. um there's people right now doing some cool experimental stuff with high pressure gas lift interesting uh, like three thousand psi gas lift if you will really See, that that seems a little that seems like 
I would let them test it first. Yeah, I've heard of two companies doing that in the Permian. But uh, so yeah, it's brave, um, brave souls. With, with wet gas and my own experience of fluid cutting, you know, gas lift mandrels, I, I just feel like, I mean, you have to have all the right things in there and dehydrate your gas. And, exactly. And all that. So it, it's if you, if you have all the right people, you want, you know, it's that's when people innovate. So mm-hmm. so there's different ways to skin a cat, if you will. And um, but yeah, I mean. For our company, every well matters, and, yeah. and the production does matter, and we have a lot of surveillance to that end. And so, when you're talking about KPIs, you know, there's industry kind of wide type things that people mm-hmm. people claim, and people throw out all these these values and all these presentations out there. But <laughs> they're fancy analytics. <laughs> yeah, we doesn't d- mean anything sometimes. <laughs> you know, one thing that we're pretty proud of in 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 our company here is is how much analytics we have and apply ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so we're a heavy spot fire shop. Heck yeah. And so we we basically have flowback, you know, f- that is imported directly from the flowback company mm-hmm. real time into our servers. And we have the production also that is also dumped in our same SQL server <clears throat> daily, you mm-hmm. know, with all our central tank batteries. Um, and so we basically have we basically get to see we get we get our drilling data like that we can get our frac data like that we you know what i mean so everything's digitized and so it allows faster, us faster better yeah it really allows us to to basically have a lot more information at our fingertips and make more educated decisions you know fast mm-hmm. we can make fast reactions and rather than just say hey something's wrong like all our esps you know, we have a dashboard. You can look at every single one. You can look at yeah. the tick pressures and things like that. I love me an ESP. I need some bottom hole pressures. <laughs> right. And so you feel naked when it's not there and the gauge shorted out, but the well's still pumping, oh you know? so It'll uh, ruin my calibration. That's for damn sure. <laughs> <laughs> so so we do we do a lot of surveillance. And so as far as our own KPIs, you mm-hmm. know, you know, from, from drilling side to completion side to even drill outs to we basically monitor all our time mm-hmm. and so we can see when we're falling flat and, and what's the root cause behind it yeah and so we're striving root we're, cause i love that you said that root so, cause analysis people it matters <laughs> yeah so we're always striving you know to hit our targets and, mm-hmm. and to understand why we're not if we're not and you know to perpetually improve and to change something if it doesn't rather than you know just keep doing the same thing expecting it to work someday you mm-hmm. know and so that's sort of you know for us we we're perpetually optimizing, you know, by virtue of all our own surveillance with all the data that's coming in. So as we're drilling, we're seeing surveys real time. Mm-hmm. We see it on our web maps. We see it <laughs> in our applications, like we're geosteering. Like I mean, it's just, it's just really neat to have all the data being so digital and just so at our fingertips like that. You know. Do you ever sleep? I do. <laughs> I do. Um, but in, in, and part of that is is once you train all the people in the field that work for you. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, and they, some people would even say, what would Christian do? You know, they already know what would <laughs> Christian do. WWCD. Yeah, it's exactly what he even said today. Cause I didn't even need to call you cause I knew exactly what you would do and I applied it. And it's just That's sort of awesome. They're so, thinking for themselves. It matters. Right. So it's just sort of like, I, I like to empower people, mm-hmm. um, to make their decisions. I like to, you know, cause, you know, help them with critical thinking. And it's like, Hey, if this happens again, this is what I want you to think about, and mm-hmm. wh- you know, this is sort of the scenario. And so, it comes to a point where you start working well with people in the field, yeah, and they just kind of are synced up with you, <laughs> and, and you know, and it makes it for a good working relationship. 
Well, heck, next time y'all are hiring, call me. Jeez. <laughs> I love all that. That's amazing. Um, so in your opinion, what is a secret sauce for successful clean production? Because, you know, you, like you said, every well matters. You've got a type curve to fill, even if it might be a little ambitious, you still want to get as close to perfect as you possibly can. So for workovers, for long-term management of a field before you have to get to the point where you're considering enhanced recovery or just plugging and leaving, what's your secret sauce there? Well, for us, it comes from experience. I've worked systems where you know, individual vertical wells had their own, you know, had their own production. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have, you go to the Permian and then all these wells are, vertical wells are commingled, you know. Gotta and love that, allocation issues. No, that's, <laughs> that's the nightmare. Uh, I've worked in East Texas where we had a wet gas, we had a wet system where everything was, was plumbed and we had test separators and then you never really know what your production is because your production is never smooth anyway. You know what's so annoying about that is production is the only truth in our entire industry. Everything else is an interpretation. So you think we'd have fixed that by now? Well, it ties to revenue, so you're, <laughs> you're right. Um, I will, and you like to be right. I so, love to be right. <laughs> so, so to your point, um, what we've done, you know, we build central tank facilities for our production and, you know, in olden days, before there was pipeline takeaway, people had many, many tanks out there for storage. And, you know, today's, in today's world, we have, we have enough tank storage for a couple days of, mm -hmm. of production. Um, but we are, we've designed our tanks to be X, and we're not going to keep adding tanks. And so we have our production being taken away with lacked units. Uh, and we have uh, all our water production being taken away, you know, via pipeline for SWD. Um, and so to, your, to answer your question, we actually are spending the money to have individual production trains. Mm -hmm. And so by having an individual production train for each well, so you basically have a heater treater and a separator. Mm -hmm. So you basically have telemetry for the one well. Yeah. So you have your oil and gas broken out. And then you do have a small percentage you know, of whatever solution gas is into the tank system that gets repiped with it via the vapor recovery unit, the VRU. Exactly. And so you have to true that up at some point, but I think that's the cleanest way that I know of today mm -hmm. of, of, you know, allocating, not having to deal with allocations to the point where you actually, you have a good understanding of what your well's producing yeah. because it's not part of this massive quagmire of a convoluted system where you have a test separator and you test your well once a week or once a month in the whole system, mm -hmm. you know? So I think it makes makes production engineers' life easier in <laughs> reservoir and understanding reserves when you have clean production. Exactly. And so I think a lot of the, our large operators, at least in the Midland Basin, do do what we do. We're not we're not unique to that. Um, but not all of them. True. But <laughs> ten years ago, there was no such thing. I know. So it was all test. You know, here's here's your heater treater. Mm -hmm. Here's where all the wells go, and here's the test one right next to it. And that's how you would individually test single wells. And 10, 12 years ago was the shale boom, so it didn't really matter at that point. Well, I think in the Permian, it was mostly still conventional type exactly. vertical development. But yeah. Yeah. So, well, what, in your opinion, makes a good operations engineer? How, how can someone who is looking for the next step in their career start assuming that role? And it's not only about 
you know, just like reaching outside your discipline. It's also knowing what your your capabilities, your natural inclinations are. So is there some sort of formula that you've noticed? I, I guess it, for me, it, the people who are the seekers are the ones, are the ones, <laughs> <I love that. laughs> the ones who kind of sort of don't get stuck in complacency. Hmm. And, and so, you know, if you're always thirsty for knowledge, you know, if you're, you're working on your, your piece of it, but if you're thirsty for knowledge, it's like, well, how does this piece of it work before it gets to me or after it leaves from, from where I'm yeah, working at? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's wanting to see, it's either you want to be narrow-minded or you <laughs> want to get the wide-angle view. Exactly. And so, you know, I, I, that's sort of my take on, you know, it's depends on your ambition level. You know, I've, I've done, went back and did college recruiting and, and, it, and it dawned on me and it's like, wow, some of these kids, like, it was just sort of, you know, I guess you just don't wake up one day and, like, you're ambitious, you know? No, you're born so, with it. I really think you some, can be born with some it. Some people are born with leadership skills and, and you know, are headstrong and things, but I, f- I have an opinion that ambition is something that is instilled upon you your entire life by your parents. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And so, I would agree. And so you kind of don't just wake up one day and, like, hey, I'm going to get all this done. And, <laughs> and, um, and so... It has to happen organically. Okay. And, <clears throat> but, you know, so so wanting being inquisitive, being involved. Like, okay, so if you're a production engineer, and you want to want, like, I don't see a lot of people step out into. There used to be a lot of like these brown bag lunches and technical meetings, and there mm-hmm. used to be a lot of lunch and learns uh, that some of these companies hosted. Um, so being involved outside of your field, like, if you're a production guy. Why can't you go and look at diverter technology? I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, because at some point nowadays, there's a well that's completely depleted. They may want a pump full of diverter just to go circulate it. And yeah. Get, you know, so there's always like a... There's always a solution. A, a distant application that you might not... It's completely out of your wheelhouse. Yeah. But people are always stuck in their silos. So, you know, I, I like, you know, it's kind of like I don't like... I like to break the wheel, if you will, and it's just sort <laughs> of, you know, being involved in many ways, like... You know, why Why did I involve myself with surface landowners, you know, before I even worked here? And it was just sort of, if you understand their plight, if you understand their concerns, you can better engineer and design everything that's going to be on their land to appease them. And it, then in turn, you just kind of sort of know where you stand. And mm-hmm. so have it's just having better communication and greater understanding, you know, on a broad level. I like that saying you said, break the wheel. Yeah. I think that's really hits home. That's excellent. So, what are your favorite rules of thumb? Your tips, tricks, evals. What what's kind of in your back pocket that has set you set you ahead, set you apart? I don't know about that, but <laughs> um, you know, I guess you know. I've always kind of sort of been. I guess I was mentored, and you know, and been worked around an older generation of the oil and gas industry. And so it was sort of like earn your stripes, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I I've every single one of you influencers, you always go back to that, and I love it because it's so lost on so many. Well, there's people, you know, they just kind of like they want it now. Mm-hmm. Like I'm JG Wentworth, I want my money now, and it's just <laughs> like I, you know, you gotta, you have to get there slowly and organically. You can't just want, 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 mm-hmm. you know, and and you have to, again. The longer you spend time doing the, well, the one thing, you get more proficient and you become an expert at it. And mm-hmm. it makes it easier to segue into something else. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So my, my trick is, I mean, my work ethic and, and, and what I do is, that's all I have is my word and my integrity, you know? That's very good. So I have nothing else, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so I don't, I don't brag about anything. I don't, that's not, certainly not what I like to be, uh, to do. I, I just like to, my work for speak, to speak for itself. Mm -hmm. And so, I, you know, I don't make waves. I'm not, yeah, I could be more involved, you know, on, on many levels and many organizations. We all yeah. could. Yeah. I guess I just was part of the old school where, you know, <laughs> just put your nose to the grindstone. Type you don't of need thing. to post a photo of you doing something on LinkedIn every day. <laughs> like if you didn't do it, it didn't happen. Exactly. Um, well, so, yeah, I'm more of a passive. I, I do like I do like LinkedIn for some of the technical content, but it is getting very, very diluted. But. Um, but going back to your to your point of 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 what what, what things that I do, I mean, I'm I'm a perpetual optimizer, mm -hmm. and so you know I'm always I, you know you come up with a design and you know you're constantly trying to improve your craft, mm -hmm. you know, and you can find that in any sport, you can find that in any industry is just to not sit and just do the rinse, lather, and repeat cycle. Those are the hustlers. They don't want to just sit. They just right. keep going. And so. I think having a low ear to the ground <clears throat> is is one of one of the things that I do mm -hmm. is I I involve myself with you know networking with other companies and, and peers and always kind of just kind of hearing what people are up to what people are doing I like you know because and just it's not like you're getting secrets from them it's just one of those things of what's working what's not mm -hmm. working you know what are your thoughts on this and so you know, getting out of your office is, is somewhat important and, <laughs> and networking is important. Um, you know, and obviously you don't have to have the biggest name, but have some name. Yeah. I mean, it's just good to surround yourself with good people. Exactly. And so it, the most successful people in this patch were to surround themselves with like-minded people who are also successful. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's, it's a mindset and just sort of a, a thought of, you know, if you're if you're the only person in your group or peers or whatever that's that has the hopes and aspirations and who really cares, it's going to be tough for your team to succeed. Mm -hmm. You know, so you have to all pull in the same direction. Mm -hmm. And so uh, alignment is a big one, you know. And um, and so yeah. I, but the other thing, you know, going back to to the secret sauce, it's just you know, is putting your time. I, I like that. I've, I've had, you know, whether I was working 18 hours a day, you know, spend weeks on end doing things in the field, <laughs> you know, at the time I, I hated it, you know. Really? But 18 hours a day for... Oh, 18 hours. No, I get that part. <clears throat> <laughs> that, I kind of missed out on my 20s. Um, That's okay. You didn't miss much. Well, <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> but so, but the point was, the point was, you know, but it got me somewhere and it got me experience and I got to meet all these people it, you know, the one thing engineers are really bad at overall, because, you know, even being one myself, I always jokingly say all engineers are on the spectrum somewhat. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are introverts, and they're they're not very communicative. Mm -hmm. And so, communication is like the pitfall where where people fall flat on their face. And yeah. it's just it's just so simple to go talk to someone and be transparent. You know, it can be a little nerve wracking, but it's where you're going to learn. Well, one thing that people have told me a long time ago, it's like the one thing you know with Christian, you always know where you stand. I like you know? that. There's no like pretending. Mm -hmm. I just don't have time for that. Uh, so, um, so yeah, it's just sort of being 
very communicative. It's, it just kind of helps. How do you judge your engineers that you're bringing along? Quarterly reviews, year-end reviews, what are you really looking for them to produce? Because like you said, you can't control everything. Sometimes the money isn't there. Sometimes the KPI can't get hit. Right. So how how do you judge their development? So we we have goals, I guess, that we, yeah. that, that we have, and we have mid-year reviews and end-of-year reviews. But because we're a small company, we're sort we sort of we have many meetings where we huddle up during mm-hmm. the week, you know, where it's you know, we have, you know, first on Mondays where we meet and kind of review all the things that happened the week prior and what we're moving towards. We have operations meetings where we involve, you know, the drilling folk, completion, production, people in the field are involved, the construction people are involved, of here's all the next, you know, projects that are coming up. And where are we on some of these things? And yeah. it involves even surface land folks and excellent and uh, and attorneys and things. We're dealing with agreements, and so we have those sorts of meetings. We have uh, development meetings that involve with you know the strategy of where our development's going and okay. do we have all the key things? And honestly, we've employed something here as of late where we call it the engineering brainstorm session. Ooh. What where, is that? Where we basically gather up with geologists. And, and engineers and we're basically from we talk about our whole development so it's we don't so as a team you know we're talking about you know strategies of how we're going to develop you know sequencing mm-hmm. you know reserves what's working we talk about frack stuff drilling stuff and we talk about everything look at y'all being interdisciplinary <laughs> so so our my ultimate goal in this company when we started here was was to continue something i had started my prior company but which is breaking silos Ooh, that's um, good. I, I've seen a lot of companies where it's like it was always this finger pointing of it's the drilling guy says, oh, that's the completion guy's fault, or the <laughs> vice versa. Or as reservoir, I was always told to blame the drillers. <laughs> right, and so it's like, how constructive is that? It, no, <laughs> it doesn't get you anything. It doesn't get you anywhere. And so when you marry those disciplines together mm-hmm. and bring everybody as a team, you know, with the common goal, you know. That's like pulling the cart forward, and in the you know, at probably a higher rate of speed than if some people are pulling different directions. And mm-hmm. so, so breaking silos was and and having more interdisciplinary, you know, FaceTime to discuss issues and things we'd like to try, and mm-hmm. you know, because a geologist can look at production all day long and say, why the heck are we not doing this? Mm-hmm. This provides that forum, you yeah. know, so that people can say whatever they want. And, like and be that. heard and so and be heard that's a big deal yeah and so I don't know how that applies in a large company obviously you could do it but um, <laughs> I don't know that it does <laughs> but, but we in a small company we endeavor to to not have silos and to communicate mm-hmm. and to collaborate mm-hmm. and so um, and the one thing that goes back to the secret sauce in this company um, as I've seen in many companies there's a lot of egos in this industry and I've seen how it's the most unproductive when people have different agendas. Mm-hmm. And so one thing I like about our team is we have, there's no secret agenda. So everybody sort of has the common goal. The universal front. Yeah, because um, I've, I've seen where people have, you know, there's five different agendas in, man- yeah. in the management piece. And it's, it never it's, works. It's toxic. Yeah. It just, it's a train wreck. It's dramatic and it creates red tape and it's just, uh, you're right, it's a train wreck. It's its its not fun. Well, to all that point, yep. 
you are known for speaking your mind, which is one of the reasons I was very excited to talk to you because you don't get that. I mean, this industry is not very kind to people with opinions a lot of the time. So can you take us through your experience recognizing when something's wrong, pushing back on management and helping steer in a different direction? Because a lot of people have ideas, but they never say anything. Well, um, I guess it depends who your audience is, if your management's receptive or not receptive. <laughs> but, you know, in exa- for example, you know, we have, in this, in this company specifically, if, if we were going to do something, you know, I could either be a yes man or I could just be very forward and say, we can go and do this. Mm-hmm. However, if we do this, I want you to know this is going to be the unintended consequence and this is going to happen in the future. And so I just, I guess in being, I mean, maybe this is a character flaw, but I'm, I'm a perfectionist to some degree. And it's sort of like one of those things where I'd rather be very upfront with people mm-hmm. um, and, and say, you know, we can go ahead and do this and it'll save you money now, but mm-hmm. it's going to cost you so much more on the long end, on, yeah. the, long, on the long term. Because, and, and, be, and, and a weird thing that happened was, you know, when you, when you talk to management, there's a lot of people in this in the industry who are who are the yes men and who just will do and please their boss. Mm-hmm. And and they get promoted and then when the problem happens they're gone. Yeah, yes and no. And I will I would say this. I would say you know, personally I'm not a fan of people who I'm not a fan of people who suck up to other people, you know. Good. And I so, like that. <laughs> and so I you know, I'm I was just like, "Hey, I can do whatever you want me to do. However, if you do this, these are going to be the outcomes." Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that to them is because I don't want to be the guy who has to deal with that problem later on. I don't want to be finger poked at me for something that I did, mm-hmm. knowingly did, knowing what was going to happen. I, I think the response of management was that they had never in their life had somebody say, you know, what the outcome would be mm-hmm. eventually. So, you know, they say, hey, could we save money by doing this? And people say, yes. And then they just do it. And then if your management said, you say, hey, should we do this and save money? And the answer is yes. However, mm-hmm. the unintended consequence is this, 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 and this. And you just know that, you know, this, for example, if you cut your chemical program because you're trying to save LOE, yeah. you know, <laughs> and, you know, we see that just, happen. <laughs> just know that you can replace every single tubing string, you know, you know, in so many years because you'll have. Failed, you have tubing holes everywhere because of corrosion, because of this, because exactly. of bugs. Two years, y'all, two years. <laughs> right, but, but see, what was the weird thing was they had never heard that in their life. They've just had yes men be prior, you know, where they just don't know, you know. And so, I don't know, I think part of it is just saying is, is not being disagreeing, disagreeable. It's more of exposing the breakdowns, everything with the yeah. both, both bookends. Because mm-hmm. people are just exposing the one usually, and they just want it to be over with. But because I care, yeah, I want them to know the big picture, and maybe it's too much information sometimes. <laughs> um, because I know I'm a chatty Kathy too. Um, so, <laughs> but however, you know, self awareness is the first step. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So it's just exposing both bookends of, of something that you're presenting. Okay. You know? um, so there's always new technologies. There's always new things and. You know, there's risks involved, and it's just always knowing both sides of it and just being very transparent with your management. Where do you think the field-to-firm breakdowns happen the most? What have you noticed? Because sometimes, I mean, being in reservoir, I've been told you don't really need to be in the field to be in reservoir, and I just completely disagree. 
Well, you know, probably not daily, but no, I, not daily. But, but I agree. Like, mm-hmm. if you understood how the facility was built, if you understood how the production was coming in, how it was being allocated, if it was true, if mm-hmm. it, how far off it would be, you know, what your percentage variance is on your instrumentation, like having a fundamental of the nuts and bolts of what you're going to go analyze is probably a big deal. It is. It is important. I would mm-hmm. say it is important. Um, so, yeah, because there's a lot of people. You know, I've heard a lot of stories of, you know, people just griping up and down about Coriolis meters. And so <laughs> it's just one of those things. It depends, you know, what they're calibrated for and for and, and what fluids are going through there and weather and all these other things and factors. Yeah. And so, you know, I, to your point, it's important to go to the field. Exactly. It is. And a lot of people hide in their office. So. Yeah. And it's just easier to go to, to your routine, what your daily routine is, than you know, to make the effort to go to the field. But I still know a lot of folks that like to go to the field quite a bit. So, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I probably go a lot less often than I should. <laughs> um, so I don't want to hypocritically say that. But, um, you know, when there's so many things going on. But honestly, when you have all the right key people working for you in the field, you f- you for have a, a comfort. A flow. Y- yeah, where they're synced with you you know you just you talk with them on the phone whether you're on your drive to work or drive home and you're always kind of sort of a few steps ahead of of everything where you're not just being reactive so Mm -hmm. i'm always pushing to be very proactive in how you know in our approach so So you think communication breakdown would be the biggest concern between field and firm It, it really is and and people get people just want to email and it's very impersonal, and and sometimes it it gets the point across. But communication is primarily the biggest breakdown. But you know, I I don't want to get back into the semantics of certain things. But if if you're an engineer who's never worked in the field, it makes it very difficult for you to communicate with someone who works in the field. Agreed. Because you don't understand some of the difference in in personalities, a blue collar person, and even in i've seen it even as an engineer myself with other engineers it's like some engineers just speak and everything that comes out of their mouth seems to be condescending yeah you know in their t- <laughs> I in know their a few. <laughs> in their tone and and intent when it's probably not what they really mean in the but that's just who they and how they are and yeah. they just you know and so you know it's very impactful to know who your field folks are to work with them Mm-hmm. Then you earn their respect, their trust, whether you think that you need to have their respect or their trust. Yeah. But once you do, then you know they got your back and you got their back. Heck and, yeah. And it's one of those things where, again, I, you know, it's being synced up with the people you work with. And uh, personality differences aside, I have many different personalities in the field. Mm-hmm. And they're all unique that way. And, and it's fine. And it's you just everybody's different. But um being very communicative and mm-hmm. so um you know I've, I've worked with people who've said oh don't tell those guys any more than what they need to know so they can't even they can't even get that job right you know mm-hmm. so you just keep you keep them very on minimalistic information yeah turns out those people <laughs> have really strived and, and 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 been a lot more successful when given the big picture yeah so you know, if you think knowledge is power, that's great. But when you share that information and tell them the direction you're going, and, and this is why we're going to do this, and we're going to do this, this, and this, and this is why, and this is why, and this is what I like, and you free to give me input. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a closed book, so I take input from people. You know, it's give and take. So I, you know, I want them to feel like they're involved, and 
And if, if they propose something and I don't like it and I'll tell them, you know, why I would not pick their solution at this point in time, but it's a good solution nonetheless. And, yeah. And it's just one of those things, son. You just get to learn to work with people. I love that. And so there's a lack of that when it's just kind of like this stuffy environment where <laughs> there's just like... You have this fancy degree. Yeah, like I'm your boss <laughs> and you're going to do... No, it's just, I don't know. Yeah. No, I've learned more driving around with pumpers than I have just sitting in my office waiting for someone to come talk to me. Exactly. I mean, I swear. But to, to your point, production engineers, operation engineers, they go out and they ask questions and they get to see both sides of it. Right. And maybe that's why it's such a coveted position. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I guess the, the glaring, glowing thing that comes out of all this mm -hmm. is your attitude and your mindset. And so if you're going into something and you, you are you have humility. Yeah, that's and a big one. So being humble in this in this industry and is it goes a long way because it, you're just not coming across as being arrogant, you're not coming across as just being condescending towards people mm -hmm. and that you're you know, you're just engaging with with people and it's just sort of a more of a natural flow at that point. Yeah. Um and I I, th I just think it allows people to feel like they're not on pins and needles and you know well they're a part of the team right it just you know they, they feel they just feel yeah they feel part of the team and you know when i involve my field guys i send them to different opportunities of things and different trainings and different things that they would have never seen in, in you know in prior management they're so thankful like and i was just like well, this is people like knowledge I, I want you to grow i want you to know more mm -hmm. i want you to feel like you know you're contributing and you, excelling exactly exactly <laughs> So there's no I in team. I like that. <laughs> I mean, so it's just one of those things where it takes a village. It takes a variety of people all around. And, you know, you, well, not one person could do it by themselves. And so if you have the mindset of, you know, of just, I don't know, just taking a step back and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and not just being in there. I want you to go do this, 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 and this, and just task people, <laughs> you know. But, you know, being focused and communication, you know, it's all about mindset. I love it. Where do you see us going? We're in a downturn right now. People are predicting the end of the world all the way to $75 oil at some point still this year. So where do you see it going? What do you think is going to happen? And then how is the oil and gas land landscape going to change? Well, um, interestingly enough, there's been some, some talks of, obviously right now, I never understood from the time I graduated college till now how some companies operated I just never understood the cloaks, the mirrors of, hmm. of our, we're growing production, we're doing great, and our stock keeps going up. And they never had to show the economics of individual wells. Yeah. And so now that, that the cat's out of the bag and people actually have to show how they're making money and not just talking about fancy buzzwords to make everybody <laughs> excited about their stock. Optimize. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it is different. And I think, you know, we as an industry, the biggest hurdle right now is solving, like in the shale world, for example, is how to make better child wells and how to have better development planning and sequencing and spacing. And obviously, I it's feel all like this conversation keeps circling it, back every keeps, ten years. It does, it does, and it's funny because you know, spacing is related to fracking. So. Yeah, it is. <laughs> in a non-conventional, <laughs> yep. in a non-conventional world. But, yeah, yeah. Um, so. You know, so so where I see us going as an industry is obviously there's a mini downturn happening right now. Yeah. Where every every operator is trying to get to cash flow neutrality. Yeah. And so um, some will get there, some may not. But 
Um, so obviously a lot of people are laying down rigs and just kind of maintaining what CDCs. They're you like know, hunkering down. Yeah, so you, they're just drilling what they have to drill to exactly. keep your which is another thing that really sucks in certain states where where you have continuous drilling, drilling obligations. Mm-hmm. It really like it would be more meaningful for the op, for the surface owners, even the mineral owners, to not have a couple wells here and have some mediocre wells along the way than to do it all correctly. You yeah, know? exactly. As best as we Science can. Science and money don't always line up. No, and so um, so where I see is going is you know I don't I don't truly buy into the seventy five dollar oil. I've heard of people saying <laughs> the irreversible decline, and and how we're we're going. But you know what? The one thing that's not said is. So much production in this country still is from conventional resources. I know. It's, per, it's still, you can call the them... underappreciated basis. Maybe they're not the big percentage of what the majority of it is, but they're still there. Yeah. And 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 on, unfortunately, so is all around the world. Mm-hmm. So even Mostly it, conventional, yeah. Right. International. And international, offshore, all this stuff, in, in, in everywhere around the world. And so I don't know that we're truly in this irreversible decline. You may have hit... Some people mentioned peak oil or something like mm-hmm. that, you know, and, and for shale and for this country, mm-hmm. perhaps, I, I don't. Well, we're wine racking the heck out of it, so. We are. <laughs> Enhanced uh, recovery might not be an option for shale. <laughs> that's too tight. Yeah. Um, but some people are injecting gas in Eagleford. I would have never fathomed that. Well, we'll see uh, how that goes first. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, but there's always a different innovation along the way, but. Yeah, you're right. Nanopores, that's going to be kind of hard to flood <laughs> other than frack planes. But, you know, so, yeah, so I don't, I, I, I kind of saw us being kind of flat. Mm-hmm. I just see the price of oil kind of just staying fairly flat for the next year. I just, I just don't, you know, there's this thing happening in Saudi and it doesn't even take a week. Oh, everything's back to normal. And so I well, don't. Well, they have a tap. I know, but I don't see the disruptions being these long-term disruptions mm-hmm. that are causing all these commodity prices to just be in complete fluctuation. So, I just kind of sort of see it from my own opinion, mm-hmm. you know, that it's going to stay fairly flat. And there's other countries out there that are going to be messing with production. Yeah. To make it that way, and as much as we've hurt them with our shale boom and being and adding our efficiencies, they more than likely will do in turn. <laughs> on purpose, you know. Um, so I don't know. Um, Tit for tat. Yeah. So I see it sort of being flat and a little bit less active. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of mergers and acquisitions. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what do you think about it, the age of consolidation? It smells. Fun. It smells like Exxon swooping in, and they haven't really done anything yet. And it just <laughs> seems like they're going to start picking off. Because um, because it seems the like Exxon buzzard. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like the, all the all the majors kind of left. You know, they kind of sort of left every basin. Yeah, they kind of did. Yeah, Be, you know, they're because, still in research in some. Y- y- yes, and in California and things, but I'm just saying for, for the most part, like the Exxon's, the Shells, the a lot of the BP, they were just kind of completely out, and then they've kind of come in and things work and things don't work, and yeah, they're cherry picking right now. The big companies sometimes get stuck in all the bureaucracy and adding all these levels of, I don't know. I feel certain companies, you know. You know, when Exxon bought XTO, you know, XTO was really good at what they did. And everybody's like, wow, this is going to be different now. But I think XTO was fairly successful for the most part because they were left as XTO. Exactly. But now Exxon's coming in. (laughs) The mothership. They're kind of swooping in now. (laughs) They're hovering around. So I don't know. I don't know. But um, I just sort of kind of sort of see more the the super majors are kind of 
looking in the swoop. That's kind of what I see. So you think that's what's going to pick off some of the underperforming companies? Yeah. Interesting. They're going to start grabbing acreage. It's it's funny, though, that private equity industry has completely turned the industry upside down. Um, it's when we got you, rid of the science. But even from the service company standpoint, you know, 15 years ago, there was three or four super major service companies. Yeah. You could have never fathomed third-party chemicals, third-party sand, third-party anything. It was like sacrilegious, and so there's all these different, and and now that you can have all these smaller teams Mm -hmm. who are really efficient at what they do in the one thing that they do, um, you know, it has helped, you know, being more lean and mean and just getting things done, Mm -hmm. and and that has happened for many service companies out there now, and so, but it's also the same for private, uh, you know, for operators, for, you know, private equity operators where they just have a smaller position, that's their niche, Mm -hmm. everything's a focus. Whereas if it's part of a massive company's portfolio, it might not be treated with the same treatment, if you will. Yeah. So it's, it's I don't know where industry's going as far <laughs> as the whole consolidation piece, but, you know, for the next year, I just don't see any, a lot of, it's kind of a flat You think line. it's just going to flatline for a little while. For a little while bit. While we all settle. We actually probably need that, quite frankly. We always say that until we don't have a job. Yeah, well, you know, that's the one caveat. <laughs> yeah. so Lots of uh, layoffs happening and rumors of layoffs. I mean, Q4, at least December, yeah. I've heard a lot of rumors. Yeah, I've, I've also heard many things. And actually, every acquisition you've heard uh, on the public wire. They've all, all come true. All the they, rumors are coming true. Well, they've all <laughs> said that we're going to reduce GNA. You know what yeah. that means. Mm-hmm. So, um, people. That yeah. means people. And so it's unfortunate. I, I, that's the one unfortunate part that I don't like, you mm-hmm. know, uh, people's livelihood. But yeah, but it is our industry. You, it, I mean, you have to have a passion to stay here. It's weird how many cycles we've gone through since I started. Yeah. You know? And it's the cycles are getting shorter mm-hmm. as we go along, which is um, I think that's self-inflicted. To self-inflicted some, to some, a certain extent because yeah. we're giving up on science and going and driving straight from the economics. We're now becoming flippy floppy in some capacity. And when the price of oil comes back, we don't, as an industry, we don't have what I would refer to as sustainable development. Okay. You what, know, explain that a little bit. Well, and when I, what I mean by that is if the price of oil goes to $75 again, just case in point, <laughs> Company X will say, we're grabbing 30 rigs. And yeah, so, they jump. So so there's these massive jump, and, and all of a sudden, you completely saturate and flood the market once again, and then crash. Mm-hmm. And it's just sort of, if it's not from international forces or other you know things out there, but, yeah. but for the most part, we're sort of our worst enemy when we're just sort of, you know, it's like, get it, get it, get it, and mm-hmm. then come to a screeching stop. You know, it'd be a lot better if it was a little more methodical and planned out where and sustainable if you will mm-hmm. that's just my pipe dream i like that well i know we're wrapping up slowly here but before we do you've ascended the roles you're now you know head of operations and you've seen a lot along the way so anyone who is I guess, newer to management or about to ascend into a management role here in industry, especially with where we are now. What is your words of wisdom for them? What what have you noticed that does and does not work? And I know communication is a big thing with you, but is there yeah. anything else? Well, you know, if micromanagement does not work. No, it does not, no. especially on type A people. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, 
I, you know, I, I think that humility is always the number one thing, you know, it's just lead from behind. Yeah, I mean, it's, if you're working with someone who, you know, it, it's, it's better to be more of in a flatter environment where people can say their opinion and, and collaborate and things yeah. like that rather than round table. Yeah. And, you know, in, in the conventional management of bigger companies where it's you're always excluded from those things, and, mm-hmm. you know, and you're like always wanting to know, I wish I knew what was being said in there. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's it's it all boils down to your communication style. So, um, you know, self-improvement things along the way is, you know, there's obviously a lot of books out there to help. Um, but it's just sort of. You know, it's kind of hard for a person to be 25 years old and be a manager. And yet we see it happen all the time. And and it's a dismal failure. Mm -hmm. Um, Understanding people, understanding personalities, you know, knowing who works for you, who who they are, how they are. Mm -hmm. You know, you you try to best to cater to to different personality styles, Mm -hmm. you know, because some people respond to certain things and not others, you know. Yeah. and it's it's evolve, constantly evolving with the younger generation coming in. You know, um, it's just it's just how people are just raised differently. You yeah. know, and so yeah, I think the old hard nose. You know, um, he's a dinosaur. You know, but that Tiger Mike. <laughs> I don't know if you ever read Tiger Mike articles. He's my spirit animal. <laughs> but you know, the old hard nosed crusty, like beat you down management style seems to be very ineffective. I would say so, yes. And it is still exists to this day. It yeah, a hundred percent. And so even with, with if, newer people, there's if, some egos out there keeping it. Even if they're young, it doesn't matter who they are. If you manage with a style of fear and intimidation, mm-hmm. you're not gonna have a lot of followers. That's true. And so now people do their jobs but they don't have the respect. Right. And they don't like they don't like being there. You know, exactly. it's just like so so to me, it's just empowering people mm-hmm. and putting your trust in people. Exactly. And then just kind of guiding them. It's just, it's kind of, it's a kind of a fine dance, if you will, of, of how to approach each different person, if you will. But, mm-hmm. but it's just your tact with yeah. people. Um, and so it's just something that you develop over time. Nobody's, nobody's going to be great at it right out of the gates, mm-hmm. um, typically. And it's just learning to work with people, no matter if they're in the field or in the office. And it's just, I mean, it just kind of boils down to, to uh, being very perceptive. Yes. So if you're in a non-observant person, <laughs> it's going to be very rough for you to be a manager. Yes. I that think. self-aware thing, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Tiger Mike, uh, one of my friends sent me his old memos. Yeah. They, I would not be able to work for him, but it cracks me up. <laughs> I can't yeah. believe that was actually being done. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty funny. What about a day in your life? Because you have a lot going on. You manage quite a bit. How, I mean, data is coming at you 24-7. How are you not losing your mind? What have you done to stay effective, efficient, proactive, because proactive is very big quality yeah. of yours, that you could give a tip to someone else? So, you know, I guess, um, so a day in the life of, of me, you know, from. What time do you wake up? Six. Good for you. <laughs> you know, I um, I, mean, I guess family situations are different for everybody. Yeah. But, um, I enjoy seeing my kids in the morning. Oh, that's um, good. And you know, before the witching hour at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. You know? So, <laughs> but you know, it, it's circumstantial. Like you know, when I worked in the field, I was up at three thirty in the morning. I was mm-hmm. always a night owl. 
I don't think I really like that, you know? Yeah, okay. And so things change along the way. So it depends. You know, this morning I was up at 5.20. But but on the most part, 6-ish. Okay. You know? Um, and uh, there's people that, so certainly a lot of people who like to come in early, leave early. I was always, for a long time, I was a come in, you know, a little later and leave way later. You know, I guess <laughs> it all depends on traffic. But, you know... Typically, morning for me is, you, you know, coming to the office, you get a lot of reports. You got a lot of rig reports. Mm -hmm. uh, you got completion reports. You got, you, you look over, you know, all the workovers, all the things that are happening. Mm -hmm. you, we have dashboards to look over production. We have dashboards to look at all kinds of stuff. You always have phone calls to make. I, I always kind of sort of make a, a to-do list of all the things I got to do a priority um, list. Post-it note, man. I, I kind of make a priority <laughs> list of of things that I have to get done when I leave the day the, the night before. So that okay. So you know you don't like lose sleep over thinking what what did I forget I was supposed to do today. Yeah. And so you know, a long long time ago we took this Franklin Covey class of what I think it was called what matters most or something. What like matters that. most? Okay. It might have been like one of those things that try to helps you organize. I didn't. I don't. The whole takeaway of it was a little too much, you know. But being organized and writing all your thoughts and goals and things. But, but you know, being organized, of of all the things I want to achieve that day and the days that I don't get any of it done because of you're being derailed perpetually. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like you're as constructive as you could have been, mm -hmm. but it's, but it's all the same, you know? So it's just sort of, you know, going through all trying to hit, for me, it's satisfying to check boxes. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? That I've done this, I've done this and I've done that. And so, um, and you know, having faced, not necessarily FaceTime, but just, you know, talking to your field folks who are mm -hmm. on the execution part or what's going right, what's not going right, yeah. anything we need to change. Um, so whether it's on the production side or on the completion side, you know, talking with the drilling guys, you know, of what's happening, you know, what problems they're overcoming, weather's coming in, are we pre-planning for being ahead of this and okay. not having, you know, issues because we hadn't thought of this, you know? Yeah. And so it's just stuff like that. It's just always kind of sort of being engaged. Yeah. You know? And so... Well, it helps you be proactive if you're engaged. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you didn't talk to anyone, you would, you probably, you know, you'd say, why did this freeze up today? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so, what the heck? <laughs> right. And so anyway, so that's just sort of, you know, for me, that's just kind that's of That's how you is. think it. Yeah. And we kind of sort of have, we try to keep as meetings as minimal as we can in our company, but we still obviously have to, uh, we have to have meetings. So we have meetings, not every day, but mm -hmm. this is about, you know. Well, I think if you have the right team, you don't have to have the long meeting. Right. And so our meetings are all scheduled for an hour. Sometimes, oh, excellent. And sometimes they're 45 minutes or less. Mm -hmm. So it's all, yeah. Quick and to the point. People lose focus. Mm -hmm. We don't have meetings to schedule meetings. I won't point. <laughs> I've heard of many large operators do that. They do. And there's people who just want to hear themselves talk, who have no self-awareness, and meetings go nowhere, and nobody's engaging, nobody's listening. Yeah. And so we have, in all our meetings, we have action logs. Okay. Uh, kind of sort of keeping us on point of all the things we've put in place. Where are we on these situations? You know, what's the update on this? Mm -hmm. How, where are we going next time? And so we don't forget about anything. We basically, you know, have priorities and bullet points of all the things that we're talking about. And so we don't stall and perpetual being derailed with whatever situation. Okay. Excellent. So, so That's really smart tip. Come in with an agenda. Don't yes. just go in to talk. Right. What is a book, podcast, or other resource that has brought you value that you would recommend to someone else? The last book that I read 
or Audible because I, I love Audible because I drive <laughs> um, and I really really loved it and I was like I was really fascinated by this book it's called Good to Great Good to Great Good to Great mm-hmm. and it's funny because it was written actually in Colorado um, I think these guys were dealing with research assistants in Boulder um, and it had to do with um, companies at first it's kind of slow but it starts talking about you know all these companies who were good to great from like the ancient old companies around this world okay. around the around the US specifically sorry um, and and what were the, all the key character traits that mm-hmm. made them great and stay great mm-hmm. versus and it, it kind of gets in the weeds and a lot of stuff but the biggest takeaway from that book for me is it it, it boils down to organizations and people being happy and not leaving and yeah. things like that. And it has to do with people. And so Invest in your people. <laughs> right. And so it, it, the one thing that struck me, and I, I, just, I feel like, wow, there's so many good things in this book. But, but the number one thing that I just remember, you mm-hmm. know, just really hit, hit home for me was in a great company, you have to have the right people on the bus. Mm-hmm. And you got to get the wrong people off the bus. Yes. Because if you have the wrong people on the bus... Some of the right people on the bus want to jump off that bus. Exactly. And so, and it's just sort of like, and it's just kind of sort of reiterates of wanting to surround yourself with like-minded people and having the right team. And it's important to have some team building. You know, you may not like everyone in your company, but professionally you have to get along with everyone. And we all work together. And it's like, I don't know. It's just sort of, um, you know. Be a team player. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Christian, thank you so much for taking the time today. You have brought such value. I have learned so much, and I'm so glad we get a field-to-firm perspective because I feel like after peak, things start, you know, just going on their way, and that's not how we can be to improve or to, quote-unquote, optimize as an industry. So just thank you so much for taking the time. You've, You've really just highlighted on so many things, and I can't wait for people to hear this. All right. Thank you. Finally, a true view from both field firm and a perspective past IP90. Y'all, Christian is pensive. He is thorough. He is well-spoken, I swear. And all these qualities have led him to the top of his field. I cannot thank him for the value he brought today. I sure learned a lot. and I know you guys did too. Anyway, if you have any thoughts or questions, shoot them to me via Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or the website at www.thecrudaudacity.com. Hold on. One more thing before you go. If today's episode brought you any sort of value, go online, rate, review, subscribe. Also, if you have any topics or influencers you would like us to feature, You can get in touch with us via Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com. Thanks so much for your engagement, and until next week, give them hell.